Hello and welcome to In Good Company, a podcast for working women with me, Atega Uagba. If this is your first time listening to the show, a bit about me. I'm the founder of Women Who, which is a London-based community for working women, and I'm also the author of the Sunday Times bestseller, Little Black Book, which is a modern career guide for working women that you can find at all good bookstores. On today's show, I've got a guest from across the pond in the form of chef and food writer Alison Roman. That name will certainly be familiar to all of our American listeners, given that Alison is something of a cult following over in the States. But for anyone who isn't familiar with her work, the main thing you need to know is that Alison has been described as the New York Nigella by none other than The Guardian. She's the author of two cookbooks, Dining In, a best-selling collection of recipes that came out about two years ago, and the forthcoming Nothing Fancy, which hits shelves later this month. Alison is also a columnist for the New York Times and a regular contributor to food magazine Bon Appetit. And on today's episode, we talk about her route into the world of food writing, the money lessons she's learned since becoming self-employed four years ago, and the effect having a huge Instagram following has had on her career, both good and bad. Here it is. My first job in the food world was working for a Jamba Juice, which I don't think you have here. It's like health food that is absolutely terrible for you. It's not actually health food, but it's a smoothie bar. Okay, but so, like full of sugar. Yeah, full of sugar. So I always say that was my first food job because it was. But after that, I took a few years off and then I got a job at an actual restaurant. I did not have any professional training when I started cooking professionally, which is funny because that meant that I it was very on-the-job learning experience. I had been in college and realized that I was spending all of my time reading cookbooks and teaching myself how to cook at home, which at the time meant I was making a pot of rice and putting an egg on it or something. <laughs> Very extremely basic. But I had kind of started to fall in love with cooking and reading about cooking and decided that I would rather spend my time learning how to do that than whatever it was that I was doing in school, even though I quite enjoyed that. And I, I read a lot on my own and wrote a lot on my own. And so I figured, well, I'll just take a break from college. It's not because I'm going to stop learning. I'm just going to learn something else. So I left college to essentially work in restaurants and start culinary school. The person I met at the restaurant who was a pastry chef, he told me, don't go to culinary school. He's like, why don't you just come work for me and see if you even like it first? And then you can decide if you want to go to culinary school because Culinary school is extremely expensive, especially for the time you spend there. You know, at the time, it was $50,000 for an, a year and a half, right? And then you get out, you graduate, and you have a restaurant job that, at the time, pays maybe $8 an hour. Like, it's disproportionate, and it sends people into debt. And most of the time, you get out of culinary school, and you realize, oh, I don't want to work in a restaurant at all. Mm. That's really hard. Mm. The hours are long. The pay is shit. It's a challenging, challenging way of life. And this was, you know, 15 years ago or so. This was the culture, the foodscape was very, very different than it is now. Yeah, I want to ask about that because my perception of kind of working in the food industry, particularly in restaurants and working in the kitchen, especially as a woman, a young woman, mm -hmm. was that quite brutal? I think that it was brutal, but I've spoken a lot about this, especially in light of all of the things that have happened scandal-wise with chefs and yeah. sexual harassment and things of that nature coming to light. 
I found myself working in kitchens that actually I didn't experience any of that. I, I experienced harassment in a different way. I experienced a lot of intensity, but in a different way. And I think that's just any person that works in a restaurant is going to experience that stuff. People treat each other really poorly yeah. in restaurants. And I, I don't think it was because I was a woman. I always say that I was treated as poorly as everybody else. What do you think contributes to that culture? Because that is something that I've heard so much about, mm -hmm. you know, working kitchens and working restaurants. Like it's this really kind of fiery atmosphere, like the kind of quintessential stereotype of someone like Gordon Ramsay, who right. is like this hot hair who screams at everyone. And that's the impression that I have of kitchens. Why is yeah. it like that? You know, I don't know. I think the culture is shifting a lot. And I think there's something about a type of person that wants to spend their time and energy in a place like that, myself included. I really fell in love with the energy in a kitchen. And I think there's something about the immediacy of it, the intensity of it, the passion of it. It's like a very direct way to kind of get out a lot of energy and to express yourself. And you're moving really fast and you don't have time to overthink anything. You're completing tasks as they're given to you. Like it's a very direct way to complete a job and live your life. I think a lot about my job now where it feels like a lot of nebulous, large, big picture tasks. And you know, you're just kind of like, well, I can't finish any of them today, so I'm not even going to start. And yeah. it feels overwhelming. But when you're in a kitchen and when you're cooking, it's like, okay, I have to do this one thing and then I can do the other thing. And then it's a lot of actionable things. And I think that that helps with people's like compartmentalization of how their brains work. But I think those types of people tend to be really intense. But in terms of that kind of negative culture, I think that that's just how it's been for so long mm -hmm. that you allow it to perpetuate. And it starts at the top. And, you know, if nobody teaches you that that's not okay, it's going to continue to be okay. And I think that it was a very masculine, very misogynistic, very sort of gendered workspace that was maybe the last one to kind of join the current world. Every kitchen I worked in, I was one of two women, if that, sometimes the only woman. So how did you learn to cope with that? Because I get a lot of emails, a lot of questions from women who are working in, not in kitchens necessarily, but in what they describe as quite misogynistic, mm -hmm. male-dominated environments. So I'm curious how, especially at, at that age when you must have been super young, mm -hmm. how you managed to deal with that. I just felt like I wanted to be there. I kind of knew that the culture was going to be like that. I didn't feel like it was gendered or personal. I felt like people were just kind of mean to each other. Yeah. And very early on, I just remember thinking, this is not right. And in no other work environment would this be acceptable. It's like the type of thing where if you weren't feeling well and you had to literally be basically dying <laughs> for someone to think it's okay for you to skip work or leave early. Like if you called out sick – you would never hear the end of it. It was like, oh, how's your time off? How's your vacation? Like, people just, it's like, how sick do you have to be? And also you're preparing food. It's, it's a whole thing. But that was sort of the beginning of me seeing how bad it was, of being like, oh, you don't value your employees taking care of themselves because you you do everything for the kitchen. And it's a very team mentality. And if you're out sick, that means someone else is going to have to work twice as hard mm -hmm. because you didn't want to show up for work. Mm -hmm. Rather than compassion or, oh, my coworker is ill and they should take care of themselves so they can come back and be strong and healthy. Yeah. I've never been in the armed forces, but I imagine it was like <laughs> sort of felt like that. It was very like a military vibe or the intensity of it. And it's like, you guys, it's just a restaurant. It's just food. Everybody can relax. And I think that now the culture is a lot more relaxed. Mm -hmm. You will definitely find restaurants where that is not the case, but mm -hmm. I – you couldn't pay me to work in those. 
Mm. So speaking of pain, those early years, were you earning a lot of money? Were you making very little money? Oh my God. I made $7.25 an hour. And I made that for a long time, for maybe almost two years. Maybe I made it up to like eight fifty. dollars I don't remember. But Was that a living wage? Like no. How did you no, 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 make no. ends meet? I basically could pay rent. And that was essentially it because you were eating at the restaurant. So and where were you sp- working? Sorry, what city Oh, in Los working? Angeles. Okay. Yeah. Right. And I was 19, 20, mm. 21, a 20, 21 at the time. cheap city. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everyone knows it's known for its affordability. Um, I, bas- I could afford rent. And I'm from Los Angeles. I could have chosen to live at home, but I decided not to because I really wanted to be on my own. I wanted to have a job that I could pay for myself. And mm pay my own rent. And I did, but that was basically all I could afford. But you worked so much that it didn't matter because there was no time to spend money on anything anyway. I ate at the restaurants. I ate all my meals there. We would get shift drinks. I wasn't even old enough to drink legally, but we'd go out to bars and someone (laughs) would buy me a cheap beer. But honestly, my life was spent in this restaurant. And so it didn't really matter that I didn't have enough money. But I was constantly, basically from the time I took my first restaurant job when I was, I think I had just turned 20. Until I had worked my way up at a magazine maybe three years in when I was 28, Mm -hmm. I was overdrafting my bank account every other week, maybe more frequently than that, depending. There was no money to be made. And it wasn't – I wasn't living recklessly. I was just trying to exist, and it was – very did you, brutal. Did you not ever think, well, I'm going to jack this in and find a career or a job that does pay me well? Because I think that is quite a long period of time to be... Very. You know, and presumably as well, I think I, I'm think i saying this because especially in your 20s, but that's when you see your friends get these like swishy corporate jobs and mm-hmm. all of a sudden they're earning six figures and going on holiday and just living really easily. Right. If that's not you. I know personally that it was important to me that I started making money in my 20s, basically. Yeah. So I'm curious as to how you kind of rationalize that. You know, that. I feel like I thought, I'm good at this, and I like what I do. Mm-hmm. And if I am continue to be this good at it and I continue to love it as much as I do, I'll be successful at it one day. I feel like I had faith in myself that one day it wouldn't be that hard. Mm-hmm. And I remember, especially after I left restaurants, I knew first I had to leave restaurants. Mm-hmm. But even still, working as an editor in a magazine, there's no money there. The days of those, like, very cushy magazine jobs where you can expense everything and make a high salary. I had caught the tail end of that, but I had just started. So I had a long way to go. But I never considered pivoting or abandoning my choices because I loved it so much. And I was good at it. And I I wanted to be better at it. And I wanted to figure out a way to make it work for me. Because I started so young and I didn't come from a ton of money, I never had a ton of money. I didn't lose money. I just Mm. never had it. And so the more I started to get, I sort of saw the light at the end of the tunnel and thought, okay, I can actually make a living doing this. And now I'm going to really go all in, which I have. So can you talk me through that transition from working in kitchens and working in restaurants to food writing? Mm -hmm. Because you've kind of like just skipped over that, but I'm intrigued. How did you make that decision? How did it happen? How did you get your first writing job? Because... Obviously, you are an expert in food and you would have been at that time. But even still, going from working in a kitchen is very different to writing and someone being willing to kind of take a leap of faith in you and say, yes, I believe you can write. How did that happen? So I was living in San Francisco at the time. I had moved from Los Angeles, where I'm from, started working in San Francisco, and I lived there for a few years. And then I said, I'm going to go to New York for three months and I'm going to see what's out there. I'm going to just explore and then I'll come back because I was supposed to open a bakery with my old boss. And about a month in there in New York, I had gotten this job at a bakery from like a popular restaurant group and it was doing really well. They had just opened and it was an easy job for me because I had come from like really intense fine dining, making 
croissants and bread every day and pettifors and like an eight-course dessert tasting menu and running a staff of four. And it was a very high-intensity, stressful job. And then I went to this bakery where I was like making cakes and pies and cookies with like really fun people every day and working in the day, not at night. And so it was a total lifestyle shift. And I kind of fell in love with New York. And so I called my old boss and I said, I'm not coming back. So that was 10 years ago. But I knew that if I was going to move to New York, I had to do what I said, which is get out of restaurants. And even though it was a bakery, I was ostensibly working in a restaurant. I was working in food service. So I started putting the feelers out to everyone I met in New York, and I said, I want to find a way to get out. I want to do something else with food, whether it's a photography assistant or a food styling assistant or a writer or a recipe tester or whatever. There were a lot of jobs that I didn't know existed. I never thought that I could write for a magazine or a newspaper or write a book. I didn't graduate college. Mm. I thought, how am I going to get out of this? You know, and at that point, I was not worried because I thought that I was a really strong cook. I had a lot of opinions. I knew how to do it well. I knew how to teach. I was like, I'll figure this out. But I was a little worried that, oh, I never graduated college. Is that going to hurt me now that I've decided to transition into something else? And did that? Was that a barrier? No, never. Not once. And I think that I got really lucky. This was around the time that food started to really gain popularity. Chef culture was changing. They were becoming celebrities. It was something to aspire to rather than feel like this. I feel like when I first started cooking, people felt bad for me or something. Or like, oh, she's working in a kitchen because she didn't go to college. Yeah. Rather than she's working in a kitchen instead of going to college. And this is aspirational, which it definitely is now. Exactly. I can imagine 10, 15 years ago it wasn't. Yeah, totally different attitude. And so – just asking people and saying, I, I'll do anything. And I did do anything. I did a million different jobs and things. And some were one-offs and some were for a few weeks. And I just said yes to literally everything. Someone would say, oh, my friend has is at launching a book party and they want donuts on the roof of this hotel. Can you do it? And I said, yeah. I had no idea what I was doing. I'm not a caterer. I don't know how to make donuts on a roof, but I did. And afterwards, I said, I'll never do that again. (laughs) And so I had to do and try a lot of different things to find the place that I ended up, which was as a recipe tester at a magazine. And I knew once I was in the magazine, even if I was just testing recipes, that I could eventually express my interest in writing and kind of start to flex that muscle and learn how to write for a magazine, learn how to write about food, translate the knowledge and opinions that I had to paper so people would want to read it. At the beginning, I was so bad. It was comically bad. Not to say I I still don't write terrible sentences, because I do, but this was next level, just poor writing, period, much less poor food writing. And I feel like I was trying to be someone else. I think that at the beginning, I was so insecure about my own opinions or that I had anything important to say that I was writing as if I were someone else or I was writing what I think you wanted to read or what my editors wanted to read. Or what's kind of trendy at the time. Right. I remember when I was trying to become a writer when I was like 18 or 19, I found something the other day that I wrote, which was like, I think it was like a speculative pitch. And <laughs> it was just kind of emulating that really like snarky vice style. Yeah. That like, you know, it was really popular 10 years ago or whatever. And I just read it back and cringed so much because it's not me at all. Right. But... I think when there's a kind of like zeitgeisty way of writing, it's really easy to do that. I want to understand actually, what do you think makes for good food writing? What are the ingredients, if I may? Uh, (laughs) Sorry, I actually couldn't resist doing that. Um. What what are the ingredients of good food writing? When people ask what I do, it's really hard because I write about food, but I write recipes. And so I think what makes a good food writer is what makes a good writer in general. I think that for me, I kind of 
came to a crossroads, especially I would say in the last year or two. I felt like very much in a growing phase of my career, especially with regards to writing, because I think when I first started out, I had these aspirations of being like a writer, a writer, writer, and wanted to be known as a writer. But what I really feel like I've fallen into and I feel good in is I'm a cookbook author. I'm a food writer. I am a teacher. I'm teaching you how to cook. So I think what makes a good recipe or a good you know, paragraph about food. I think that you should learn something. I think that you should be entertained. I think that you should remember something that I say so that the next time you're cooking something or cooking anything, you remember, oh, I should do it that way. Or, oh, I read that, right, when I'm doing this, I should always be doing that. Or something that sticks with you, a phrase or a word or a way that I'm describing something. I think that I put so much pressure on myself to be thought of as literary but the goal for me is to really be servicey. I want to provide a service, and that's to teach you and encourage you to cook. Not that you can't do both, and I try, <laughs> Lord knows, but I think that I'm becoming more comfortable in sitting with the fact that I'm in like the service end of the spectrum. And, you know, saying bake this pie until the crust is brown is actually not that helpful. You want to say, bake the pie until the crust is the color of a really good graham cracker. And if it's not, keep baking it. You think you're going to be baking it too long, but you're not. And make sure that, da, 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 you know, everything to coach you along the way. So when you're doing something, when you're baking that pie, you know you can trust yourself because I've given you every description humanly possible. Mm. I want to talk about your recipes, actually, because the phrase that kind of keeps coming up and I suppose something that you've put out there yourself is highly cookable. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Highly cookable to me means that it is easy to shop for, it's easy to execute, it's easy to love, it's kind of all around, it's easy to cook, you know? And I think that when you say something's easy to cook or highly cookable, you have to take into consideration ingredients, availability, accessibility, the amount of equipment you're using. Is it a lot? Is it a little? How long it takes? Is it forever? Is it 20 minutes? If it is forever, do you have to pay attention the whole time? Mm -hmm. Things like that. Something that's going to actually encourage you and give you zero excuse to make it because the reason for not making a recipe will always beat the reason for making it. You can look at something and say, that looks so delicious. And then you read the ingredient list and you're like, oh, well, I don't have any of that. And I'd have to go to four different stores. I'm not doing it. Or this is going to take three days. Absolutely not. Or it looks really complicated. I'm just, I'd rather not. To say something looks delicious is really non-committal, but to actually go buy the ingredients and then come home and make it and eat it is an investment in your time and your money. It's really important to me that you be able to look at a recipe. It fits on one page. You can see the ingredients and you say, oh, I have half of them already and I just have to go to the corner store to get this, that, and the other. And then I can come home and be eating in an hour. And that to me is really exciting. And how much do you think about health when it comes to recipes? And the reason I'm asking that is because of the, I think, trend for clean eating and I think what is essentially diet culture mm. by a different name. And I'm actually, I'm curious as to what you think of, I guess, clean eating and that kind of food trend, which I think maybe started out from a place of good intention, but for mm -hmm. me has morphed into something not great. I'm intrigued about your take on that. Yeah, I think most of it is pretty empty. And I think that people use words to sell them on something. But I don't really think there's a ton of value in the words clean eating. What does that even mean? Like, what is clean eating? I don't know. Is it meaning not cooking with fat? Does it mean going vegetarian? Does it mean eating hemp seed? What is it? And I think we've commodified this idea that if we eat certain things, it's going to make us look and feel a certain way. Mostly look. I feel like we were trying to sell people on feeling better, but what we really mean is look better. I don't know. I've never subscribed to 
trends of any sort. I am wearing overalls. I feel like they're kind of I was about to say, you're very fashionable and (laughs) very trendy. But anyway. Um, But in the food world, yeah, I feel like the second you sort of subscribe to that idea or jump on that bandwagon, it's going to fall apart someday. It's not going to last. And I think that my goal is to be classic and everlasting and all seasons and something you can turn to in 20 years. I think that it's kind of a bummer that we've started weaponizing food against ourselves, where if we eat something that has cheese or butter or dairy, like we feel bad. And I think every human and everybody reacts to food differently. And I don't feel great when I eat a ton of cheese. Guess what? I love cheese and I will eat it and then I will, you know, not feel great for a minute. But it's something that I understand, but I won't let anyone shame me into telling me that that's not what I should be eating. And I think just stepping back from the food or the ingredients itself, but cooking for yourself, cooking for other people is an extreme act of self-care. And I use air quotes because people love to throw that phrase around, but I really do mean it. I think that it's like an expression of love for yourself and for other people. And whether you're making a pizza at home or you're making a salad or whatever, I think that we should recalibrate the way that we talk about food as health, because I think that mental health is extremely important and cooking for yourself. And, you know, that experience is to me like a wonderful way to take care of yourself. Mm, I love being cooked for, actually. I feel like it's one of my favorite things. If if any, I wasn't hinting, by the way. No. I love I'm happy to because it, it me. makes me so anxious to have people cook for me. I would so much really? rather cook for you. Yeah. So we were a great <laughs> why, pair. You why, does that, why does that make you anxious? Are you worried that they're, do your friends kind of cook for you and they're like, what do you think? And you're like, this tastes like trash. No, 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 no. Luckily, the people that I know in my life that do cook and cook for me are excellent cooks. Okay. And I'm, I feel very lucky. But I think it's honestly, I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I've tried to articulate it. I haven't done a very good job yet, but feel like a lot of the reason I started cooking is to like deal with anxiety, especially home cooking. If I'm at a party, if you invite me over mm-hmm. and there's nothing for me to do, like busy myself with, I freak out. I, I don't freak out, but I have a really tough time with it. I'd rather say, you need me to like chop a bunch of parsley. Can I pit your olives? Give me something to do. And I feel like channeling that energy into food and cooking. Like if I have you over, I'm going to be cooking the whole time. But I have a very, I have an open floor plan in my I apartment. This. I love this. I'm design. coming over. Yeah. <laughs> I want to change tack a little bit and talk about Alison Roman, the brand. Oh, Lord. Um, Talking about you in the third person whilst you're sitting right here. How much thought do you put into the idea of yourself as a brand? How much do you think of it? Because I can see that you're probably going to (laughs) say, no, not at all. And I think I ask that question of a lot of people and they're like, no, not at all. But you are a brand. Mm. And that is part of what's allowed you to be successful. That's, you know, there is a specific way that you communicate what you're about and what your food is about that contributes to that success. So I kind of want to understand what your thoughts are on your own personal brand. Honestly, I think it's being honest. I think it's being genuine. I feel like I listen to myself and if something feels weird or if I'm asked to do something that's not something I would normally do or say or wear or cook, I recoil. I decline and I don't want to participate in that. I feel like being 100% true to myself is the only way that I'll ever maintain this level of whatever it is. And I feel like the more I do it and the more often I practice that, the more secure I feel in it. And I feel like right now, I feel very lucky that my first cookbook did as well as it did. I feel great that I have this New York Times column. I feel so fortunate that I'm able to support myself financially by doing what I love. And I feel great with where I'm at right now. So I feel like I don't have to change who I am to increase the amount of work that I have or the amount of success that I've achieved because 
I'm very happy with what I have. If I got more, that would be great. But I think that will only happen if if I continue to kind of trust myself. And I don't put that much thought into social media. I really don't. But you have a huge Instagram following. I checked on my yeah. way here. You have <laughs> 213,000 followers. It's wild. It's, Talk me through that. How did that really happen? It's really wild. I don't know. I think it happens with each time somebody writes about me or I'm if I'm on the Today Show or if I'm on a podcast or if I'm on written about in an article, I think that each time that happens, you reach a new audience and they become aware of you. And then they, so it, it's like a gradual thing. It's definitely not overnight. I mean, obviously, you are a food writer and a chef. So there is a lot of food on your mm-hmm. Instagram. It's mostly food, actually. But, you know, for instance, I was, I think it was yesterday or today, I was looking at it on your stories and there were these like little templates. And, mm. you know, it looks good. I'm intrigued as to how you think about the content that you share and Mm -hmm. how you kind of package it up, like what kind of strategy goes into that? Because there must be some kind of thought that goes into that. So for that, there is a strategy, and that's because – so my column for The New York Times runs bi-weekly. So I have a guaranteed new recipe every other week, every other Wednesday. And it goes online on Monday night. So I promote it in my stories on Tuesday and then in my feed on Wednesday. And that is literally the only strategy I have. Because it's something that is controlled and it's regular. Anytime another article comes out, I kind of am always surprised. I don't know when it's going up online. I don't know when it comes out. I'll always promote it when it does, both in my stories and in my feed. I have an assistant who helps me with the stories for the New York Times stuff because it's a regularly scheduled thing. I write the captions. We put them on the photos and she puts it into the whatever app and then posts it. And that's just because, to me, that's like a thing that you can look forward to every other week or something. It has some sort of familiarity. Regularity, I think, tends to really pay off when Mm -hmm. it comes to stuff like that. Have you noticed any trends in terms of what performs really well? I'm using a kind of advertising term there. But have you noticed trends in what performs really well on social media, Instagram, what doesn't really do well? Does it ever surprise you? What kind of tends to take Mm, off? No, honestly, I have not figured it out, like what will always do well and what always won't. I think that it depends on the time of day. It depends on where you are. It depends on the mood of people, I guess. I don't know. I, I think that I try to just post things that I find interesting or relevant. I take a million photos that never see the light of day. And that's just, they're not important enough to share. I don't really have that much to say about it. If I don't have something to say about it, I don't want to share it because it's going to come out for us or you're going to be able to tell and you're going to be bored. And I'd rather post infrequently than bombard you with something just to keep me in your brain. I don't need to to be ahead of the algorithm. Yeah. I don't need to be in your head all the time. I don't need to be at the top of your stories. If I don't have something to say, I'm probably not going to say anything. I think that is a good attitude to life generally. (laughs) We touched on something just there that I want to return to, which is like brands and partnerships. I feel like you were kind of alluding Mm -hmm. to that. Mm -hmm. And I was curious as to how you decide what sorts of opportunities to take on, how you negotiate them. Do you have a manager? How do you? Because I think the thing is with someone like you who is self-employed, there isn't really a kind of template for what you do in the sense that there is only one Alison Roman or right. as far as I know so <laughs> me you, too you know yeah, you like you can't really like compare in the same way but no. you can so how do you kind of figure out I guess your value and the money side of things not this past December but the December before that I signed on with the manager and she does mostly actors and writers and comedians but she approached me and said I think you're have a thing and you must need help. And I was like, oh my God, please help me. I really need help. And she has been so helpful in helping me navigate my worth. And then I had to hire a lawyer because 
you know, there's a lot of contracts and legal stuff that I was basically receiving on my own. And I would just send them to my friends that are lawyers. Oh, wow. And they were like, well, I don't really do this kind of law, but I could look it over, I guess. And I'm liable. Just, yeah, exactly. And I was like, well, this is not sustainable. And I also can't ask my friends to do this for free. So I have a lawyer and a manager. They're both women. They're both amazing at their jobs. I adore them. They stand up for me when I can't stand up for myself. They protect me financially and legally. They run everything by me. They kind of know what I will and won't do. They'll approach me and say, we have a feeling that this is not for you, but just want to present it. And they kind of get me and what I'm about. And my rule of thumb is that because those sort of sponsorships or partnerships, I don't need that money right now. Like it's not my job. And I always try to tell people that when I, someone, you know, they'll call me an influencer and I'll say, I feel like an influencer is a person who lives off of partnerships, yeah. I guess. And not that that is there anything wrong with that. I think that that there's some people that really hustle and make it work and good for you, but I'm a writer and I'm, I write books. That is what I do. And so anything that's going to compromise my job, I have to say no to. Right. And that's whether or not I'm shilling for something that, like, is not a tool that I would use or a product that I would like or an event that I would go to or anything. That becomes, like, the yucky area. I've done it before. I'm not saying that I haven't, but I don't do it anymore. Like, it's something that I did and was like, nope, don't like that. That mm. felt weird. It feels, like, embarrassing. Like, I get brands approaching me to do stuff, and I think my – kind of metric and I actually say no to like the vast majority of things but my metric is like am I going to feel embarrassed yes. to post this on 100 same. and like are my friends going to be like what the fuck yes, is this exactly like, and if that's the case then I have to say no which is unfortunately the majority of things out yeah, there yeah and sometimes you say no to a lot of money and you're yeah. like well and it feels weird but yeah it's like the pit in your stomach test right where you're like can I post this and be proud of it or am I going to be like oh I hope nobody sees this <laughs> Would you ever consider, like, starting, like, your own product line? Like, you must have had, like, approaches and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Like, would you ever consider kind of extending your brand into that space or, like, a restaurant or something like that? Is that – how do you feel about that? Yeah, you know, I think in terms of products, I have a collaboration coming out with a startup that's, like, kitchenware stuff, but it's a limited edition. We designed five tools that are based on my favorite five tools that are – I've either gotten from flea markets or I've had for 15 years and just things that aren't made anymore that I can't find that I think this is the best version of this mm -hmm. or this is the spoon I always use and can't find it anywhere. So it's kind of like a capsule collection. And that to me is really cool and interesting because it's collaborative. It's working with a company that's already in existence. It'll be limited edition. It's very low stakes for me. And it's just kind of a fun thing to do. But in terms of other things, I've had people approach me and say, like, well, why don't you do like a line of cookware? This, that. And I'm, I'm like, well, I'm not an engineer. I'm not a cookware person. There's so much stuff that exists in the world, like things. I don't necessarily need to make more stuff. I want to enrich your lives in a different way. And... I think I'm more interested in expanding my reach to people that are not just into food, but that are into like travel and lifestyle and, and things like that than developing a product. But I think someone approached me the other day and said like they wanted me to do a collaboration of spice blends or something. And I was thinking, I would never ask you to buy a spice blend. I won't ever buy a spice blend. So why would I put my name on a spice blend? Yeah. You know, like I'm sure people would buy it. At least one person would buy it. But that's antithetical to my style of cooking and to who I am, so why would I do that? Yeah. But, like, do you want to do a cool tie-dye 
tea towel collaboration? Absolutely. That sounds fun because I use them and I want them and that is fun to me. I'm going to be keeping an eye out for that. Yeah. <laughs> Send me one, please. I want to carry on talking about money, which is, I'm very biased. I'm writing a book about women and money at the moment. So yes, I'm always so desperate important. to understand women's relationship with money, especially in a professional context. Because mm-hmm. again, as I mentioned, you're self-employed and have been self-employed for like how many years now? Gosh, four? Four years. Yeah. And I do think the way you approach money when you're self-employed is massively different. Like I used to work a full-time job. I used to work in advertising and then became self-employed. And I've learned loads of money lessons. And I'm curious as to how you learned to kind of manage your money. Like, And this is like before I know you have like managers and like presumably an accountant and that kind of thing. But like, mm-hmm. what are the kind of like money lessons that you've learned about being self-employed? Yeah, I think the number one lesson was to get somebody to help me manage my money. Okay. And I real- I recognized very early on that I needed help. Um, like an accountant? Yeah, she's um, I, she's a financial advisor. Okay. So I had an accountant. I also have an accountant. Okay. Who, he basically just does my taxes. Okay. The only person that I work with that's actually not a woman because <laughs> my financial advisor is also a woman. She is amazing at talking me through my goals and my potential and really, really convincing me to put away a ton of money that I can't touch, that I don't even know is there, that I won't look at for future me. I'm still struggling to wrap my head around that, to be honest. I know that I should look at my pension, but I'm like, You have to kind of treat it like monopoly money. You have to just be like, this is a random number, and I'm not even going to miss it because I've never even seen it. Mm. So the way that books work is that I get book advances. And so from this advance, I have to live off this money. It's almost like you know, I don't get a paycheck. I get large sums of money. Every now and then. Every now and then, yeah. So what I make in a quarter, I don't know how taxes work here, but we pay quarterly taxes. So every, or I do as a freelancer. Yeah. And so sometimes in a quarter, I've made like zero dollars. And then the next quarter, I've made enough money for the year. And so the way that it breaks out is that I now am able to save because I'm getting this money in a lump sum. So if somebody says, like, you're going to get $100 to last you a week, and somebody says, okay, well, next week you're getting 80 you're like, well, I guess I'm just going to make 80 work. Yeah. I didn't even know that I was going to get 100 This week I'm getting 80 yeah. So it kind of works for me in that it's invisible. I never had it. I don't need to put it away myself. It's just kind of taken out of what I'm getting. Mm-hmm. And knowing that I have money for when I'm older, if things don't go well <laughs> for this cookbook thing, is such a load off. It was the most adult thing I've ever done in my life. I'm really intrigued by that, actually, because I know and I tell other people, oh, you need to have a pension, even though you're self-employed, you need to have a pension. I don't have one myself. Mm. And I think in my in the back of my mind, I have this logic that I'm going to somehow not come into a lot of money, but like oh, I'll yeah. make it somewhere yeah. and I will like grow my business or build a business or whatever, even though I know that the thing to do is to start a pension. So how did you kind of get around that, I guess, mental hurdle? I'm sure it was similar for you. When I had a job, I had a 401k. I was getting money taken out of my paycheck for this account. Yeah. And when I left the company, I took that money with me and it just sat in a bank account. It wasn't really doing anything. Mm. Eventually, it occurred to me, if I just met with somebody who could tell me how, this money could grow without me doing anything. It already exists. I've had it. It's just sitting in an account. It wasn't much, but Mm. in 10 years, it could be more without me having to contribute anything. And so when I met with her to discuss this, she was like, yes, you could do that. Or you could also contribute to it. You could grow it. You could feed it. And then by this year, you should have this much. And it felt like a light bulb moment for me of thinking, it actually will take very little from me. But I only did this last year, and I've been freelance for four years. And I did it only because I started to understand that if I ever wanted to live differently, I needed to save money for myself. And that if I didn't want to hustle my whole life, which 
no matter how, quote, unquote, like, successful I am or feel or how many jobs I have, I feel like every day I'm still, like, absolutely hustling. I feel like I'm absolutely working as hard as I can to get work and to put myself out there and to grow. And to generate income. Yeah, and I imagine when I'm 65 or 70, I might not want to do that. So I should have something to live on. (laughs) Yeah, I totally agree. I feel like I still need that, like, come to Jesus moment, but you're definitely, like, bringing me closer. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a lot less painless once you do it for the first time. I know. I, like, save money, but I think I can't get over the hurdle of putting it into a pension or a 401k where, you know, you, you get can't a contribution. Yeah, I can't deal with the not being able to access it. So I save money, but I don't put it into a pension because... I mean, you can access it. It's just going to cost you. Yeah, so exactly. It's your it's your choice. And when I got a very small sum of money from my grandfather when he passed away when I was 15, and my mom gave it to me when I was 21, and she said, you can touch it, but you're going to pay taxes on it, and you're going to lose money if you access this account. But it's yours. You're an adult. You can do whatever you want. I blew through it in a year. <laughs> Again, not that much money, but, like, because I could, I did. And now... I'm I'm quite glad to hear, not in a mean way, but I'm quite glad to hear that's what you did. Because I was like, where is the story going? Are you so sensible that at the age of 21 you were like, no, I'm going to put this on my pension? I'm like, okay, great, because I would have done that as well. Absolutely not. I had zero dollars for most of my life. Uh, Only in the past, like, five years have I been like, oh, I don't have to live with an overdraft fee every month. Mm. Like, this can be different. Mm. So... I want to talk a bit about, because we talked about your personal brand and your brand. For anyone listening, Alison has had not one but two recipes go viral. Mm -hmm. There was the cookies and the stew, which to me is actually quite like an extraordinary thing. Like, I don't think I'd really heard of recipes going viral before. I hadn't really either. I that was a thing. Unless it was on BuzzFeed or it was like a different type of virility. Yeah. That's a word. But I wonder, with Instagram being, I would argue, quite an important part of your platform, Mm. You know, you have a column at the New York Times and all that sort of thing. But I wonder whether you've ever faced any kind of, I guess, pushback or cynicism around the fact that you are a young, fashion-conscious, like, photogenic woman. I think there Thank can you. be... Yeah, really nice it's, just, it's just a subtle compliment <laughs> there. Especially within the food industry where I think there's hierarchy and, like, mm. people take you seriously or, you know, there can be, like, a lot of snobbery. I just wanted to know how you've navigated that and whether you've ever kind of felt a certain way about that. Oh, absolutely. I think that I'm probably very sensitive to it, but I definitely feel like sometimes people don't take me seriously. And I think that they do think that I just stepped into this role or grew my Instagram presence and then got a New York Times column or something. And it's a total double-edged sword because I think sometimes people think I'm successful because I have an Instagram following, not that I have an Instagram following because I'm good at my job. I think that because I'm young, because I'm a woman, this, that, and the other, I feel definitely taken less seriously than a lot of other people in my same position. And that doesn't mean that I haven't also been doing this for 15 years and that I take myself very seriously. But I also don't sometimes. And that's okay. And I think with regards to food especially, a lot of what I write about and a lot of how I encourage people to cook is that I am flexible and I want you to be as well. And I want you to not take yourself so seriously. It doesn't have to be so serious or stuffy. And I think that a lot of the old guard, especially with food writers, it is so serious. It is so self-serious. It is so earnest. It is so precious and elitist and, you know, put on a pedestal. And I just don't see it that way. And I never have. And it's not because I'm less passionate or less good at it or less intelligent about it. I just think that in order to get more people cooking, which should be every food writer's goal, is to just be a little bit nicer about it. And that can be fun. It can be funny. It can You can have a joke in there. You can talk about something else for months. Like, it doesn't have to be so self-serious. And I think in embracing that part of me, 
which is never not going to be a part of me, there's definitely some people that will never be on my team, if if you will. Have they made that known or is that something that you're um, kind of very consciously aware of? No, I just, I see it subtly where I, there's just like events I'll never be invited to, awards I'll never be nominated for, clubs I won't belong to, essentially, where I look at something and I could be like, my book is better than this book, but yeah. my book will never win an award like that. I don't know. I think that measuring success is really important for yourself and literally nobody else. Like, I don't actually care if anyone else thinks I'm successful because as soon as I start thinking that or putting that pressure on myself to be successful to everybody, I'm going to drive myself crazy. I just have to be happy with my level and not really worry about what other people think. But that's been a really hard journey for myself, for sure, because there's a lot of people that I admire that definitely will not give me the time of day or just kind of dismiss me. And that's okay. I'm not for everybody. And I would rather be myself and I would rather elicit opinions and other people and be able to be myself and voice my own opinions than be some like milk toast, everybody's cup of tea, like vanilla, whatever. I just, that's just not going to be me. You seem very self-assured. Mm, I am riddled with self-doubt and anxiety <laughs> constantly. Aren't we all? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that as soon as I started embracing that or just leaning into the fact that I'm not going to be for everybody, I became a lot more self-assured. Because trying to please everyone and be everyone's favorite cookbook author or recipe writer or food writer, it was never going to be real. It was never going to be the reality of the situation. And I just was like, well, I have to be happy with myself. In trying to lean into that and repeat that every day, I've grown more self-assured because I am more myself. And it translates to everything. It translates to my friendships and my dating life and my professional life. And just I think that's just as we get older. It's like, well, I'm 33. I'm not probably going to be much different. Or if I am, I'm going to be different in a better way because I'm going to work on myself and I'm going to grow. And like self-acceptance is such a huge part of that. And when I was 23, that was definitely not a conversation I was having. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining me today in the studio in Hardy Grant's offices. And where can people find you and your work and buy Nothing Fancy? They can find all those details at alisoneroman.com. And that's Allison with one L. Or on Instagram, which is at alisoneroman. Allison with one L. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank, Thank you. you so much for having me. And that's it for today. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be back next week, but for more career inspiration and information in the meantime, follow Women Who at Women Who on Instagram and Twitter, or head to our website www.womenwho.co forward slash newsletter to sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Roundup. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Otegiwagba. That's O-T-E-G-H-A. E-W-A-G-B-A. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review as it really does help boost the podcast enormously. See you next week. <laughs>